Hello and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Historical Humans Podcast. We are back here with you for episode 19, which we're talking about man versus animal. But first, I think it's time we should introduce everyone. I am joined today by my co-hosts, Colm Coleman and Aaron Gilpin, who will now be joining us in a more permanent setting. He is our new co-host. Um, That's right. You can't get rid of me now. <laughs> Send help. You stuck, you, you stuck with me. You gave me food and attention. No, I'm not going anywhere. He is like a gremlin. We cannot feed him after midnight, and we are currently trying to return him to his uh, normal time seen in his background. Yes. I, I, I'm more comparable to a raccoon. You fed me once, now I'm at your back porch every day, and I will break in. <laughs> Well, and everyone leave your comments, say welcome to Aaron, and my name is Justin Woods, and let's just jump right into it, because we're going to, we're talking two major events. Both are very similar in nature, but both have monumentally different courses, so a yeah. little bit of a warning that we will be talking about death and famine, but we will be talking about, on the converse, something very lighthearted. So be prepared for the whiplash of a century. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, today is... Uh, we're trying something a little bit new here on Historical Humans. We are going for a battle of the greats. Uh, we're going to do two topics back-to-back -back as sort of a side-by-side -side thing. We have for you the Great Leap Forward and the Great Emu War. Uh, these are... This is the Battle of the Greats and Battle of the Birds here. <laughs> you know, you got to make a great leap forward if you're going to bring your society into the modern age. Yep. So, yes, the Great Leap Forward is uh, China's second five-year plan because the first one really didn't work out. <laughs> what happened there? The last six years? Uh, uh, basically, uh, China... Uh, China did not like the Russian model of industrialization, which is you grow a bunch of excess food, sell the food to capitalists, and then use that money to build machines to make you self-sufficient. China does not have the food surplus to do this. China is barely able to grow enough food annually to feed China. So China proposes for their second five-year plan a much more ambitious project. We're going to do it all in-house. We're going to industrialize and we're going to up our farming uh, output so we, have a, uh, so we have a lot of grain to sell overseas. We're going to do it both at the same time and there is absolutely no way that this is going to go wrong yeah. for any of us. China really, they really take that like economy of scale to heart. I mean, you look at their population, you look at their industrialization, yeah. you see it I here mean, with the two plans. I mean, this is also a time before, you know, China had its uh, population explosion. I mean, it was still one of the most populated countries in the yeah. world, I think, back then. What were the yeah. dates? Uh, it is. Uh, so this plan uh, was put in operation from 1958 to 1960. But its ramifications did not end until 1962. Well, it only lasted two years, so it must have just been a great, great success, right? Yeah. So their main plan 
was they're going to transform uh, China into this communist paradise because China is uh, under Chairman Mao, full swing of the revolution, uh, you know, workers unite, all of that, uh, all of that sort of uh, communist party patriotism is just electrifying throughout China at this time. And their big plan is they're going to use manpower for industrial-grade manufacturing. You need a heavy machine to lift that engine block? Get 10 people to do it <laughs> instead of one big machine. We don't need no machines. We have a lot of people. We're just going to use you know, human hands to do the things that the West and Russia are using their machines to make on the assembly line. It kind of gives me, like, I guess it's a bit odd, but it reminds me of that, uh, what was it? It's it's an old folktale from like during like the eight like the Gilded Age about a man trying to carve through a mountain faster than a machine. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, Henry Ford, or no, not Henry Ford. Not Henry the Gilded Ford. Age. Not not Henry Ford. Uh, John Henry. Yeah, John Henry. John Hen <laughs> it was a, it was a Henry. I I'm doing I'm doing John I'm doing Henry Ford. I'm doing chain reaction. That very uh, that very old game show, chain reaction. If you know it, comment it in the comments oh. below because it's you, know, John Henry Henry Ford. Ford Speaking Motors. Of comments. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe Ooh. for more John Henry content. Die. <laughs> get get shoe shoe sponsored segment. <laughs> But yeah, that's what that's kind of what it reminds me of. Like, why, what, whatever a machine can do, John Henry can do better. I mean, there's so, John Henry certain... dies at the end of that story. But, yeah, but he beat the machine. To be fair, there is a certain truth in that in that tale of like having a lot of manpower, whether they're doing repetitive tasks or not, can sometimes outperform the machines, and we see that in a lot of industrial settings, especially when you look at like. Like you said, Henry Ford and the mass manufacturing. Obviously, that's a bad, a liter, a bad uh, example now, given you know Tesla and all the cars being built by robots. But like, you hire an army of people, you do an army of work. Yep. And uh, I mean, oh, also boy, considering. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. You, you can go and say China really did uh, reorganize their people into an army. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. when you think about it. Manpower is all you really need to accomplish most, or I guess all building tasks in a way. Uh, well, manpower and some except engineering. for the pyramids, you yeah. need aliens for that. Oh, yeah, clearly. You'll shut up, both of you. <laughs> I will have no talk of the Allens. No, it's fine. I hate I, as much I, as a child, even before I became an archaeologist. Um, I had a deep burning hatred for ancient aliens this podcast has a staunch stance against ancient aliens as we are all archaeologists by training and thus realize that ancient aliens is full of bullshit as Disclaimer such we have a great deal of problem with most things on the history channel sue us <laughs> uh, we dare you <laughs> no 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 don't don't dare people to sue us come on man <laughs> I am kidding. I For kid. legal purposes, that was a joke. I, we we I, do not we, want people to kid. sue us. We kid, we kid, we kid. We we do hate the History Channel, but we we joke. <laughs> yeah, but, it's not uh, even history anymore. Anyway, uh, China is thinking a lot like uh, Aaron, where it's just a matter of manpower, <laughs> um, and they really know how to free up that manpower because they reorganized the entire country into a commune system. 
all the individual farms are gone. It's now one massive field with everyone living in apartment blocks around it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, they, uh, they do everything they can to free up work. Uh, they implement a communal kitchen so that one person can cook for the entire community so that all those women can get off their lazy butts uh, <laughs> and quit their child-wearing duties and just get back to freaking work. It is time for them to pull their... They make up half the population. They need to pull their weight. Damn. And so, yeah, women are working as field hands. The idea the of the communal quality. kitchen is kind of interesting, though. I like that idea. Just from, like, a cultural perspective, because that really... What a lot of people don't realize is a lot of socialization happens around food. So if you have a communal kitchen, you're going to end up building a stronger sense of community and in a place where ideals and, you know, I these whole um, ideological fallacies... I don't want to say fallacies. Ideals, I think, are probably best. But, like, you can really reiterate that when you build that strong sense of community and, like... You see it a lot in post-Soviet Russia. A lot of Russians honestly look back favorably on the Soviet era because they felt more communal. They felt like they were more a part of their common, you know, they felt like people got along better. Yeah. Uh, I think the only problem would be with the communal kitchen would be the communal dishes. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's the same one person. Your whole job is your whole job is that kitchen, so it is the same person for all of that. Oh man! <laughs> so you don't have to worry about it unless you're that person. All the ideology stuff. Yeah. Guess who leadership was chosen uh, for these communes? Oh, oh it's purity. not an election. It's not skill. It is the ideological purity of the member, and oh. uh, this is the first major pitfall of this plan because you see you know what's considered not a part what, what's considered ideologically impure at this time in china oh god i don't want to know manufacturing expertise knowing things is considered an impurity so education is anti-communist uh skilled labor is anti-communist it really sounds like the so i'm sorry all the all the experts, yeah, but the Amish that will, will listen when it comes to building a house will listen to a man who is a trained carpenter. I guess, yeah, yeah. Being here, being a trained carpenter made you you were seen as a potential traitor because what? you were skilled labor. But that also tells you uh, something if you're yeah. going after people that know things. He knows yeah. something. He's a heretic. Yeah. See, China in their whole civil war and their effort to perform this communist revolution was extremely opposed uh, by the people in industrial manufacturing mm. and the people in education. That makes sense. And those groups, although they remain in China, using them and listening to them is considered very wrong because they are not the pure. And it is this kind of puritanical obsession that um, leads to the idea that every yokel rice farmer out there should be able to have a smelting furnace in their uh, backyard and produce high-quality steel, which the farmers proceed to do. By ripping, like, the nails out of doors and uh, melting down all their pots and pans 
in just homemade bonfires. <laughs> wow. I, I don't think if anyone, I don't know if I remember correctly, but doesn't it require at least 1200 degrees for like iron to melt? It's like 1200 to 1500. Yeah. Yep. Fahrenheit at least. So Yeah. And uh, they do make some brick furnaces. They make some like brick making type ovens. You'd be amazed at how uh, strong of an of a smelter and like an oven you can make just mm -hmm. purely out of mud. Yeah. Um, I did a whole field exercise where we made pottery and we didn't have a kiln of any sort. We built one out of mm -hmm. mud and it with proper air constriction and proper like heating, mm -hmm. you would be able to get there. No problem. Yeah. And so one of these things the farmers do know how to do is they know how to make these mud brick uh, ovens for the making of like bricks and other things for their lives. So they make these ovens and make these, you know, fires and bonfires and ovens. And they just throw every scrap of metal they can find. Iron nails, tin cans, uh, the silverware. Ugh. So instead of making nice refined steel, they take nice refined objects and smelt them down into unusable lumps. And this is China's industrial output. Hmm. Really? Yep. Uh, and uh, they also cause mass deforestation because they're constantly burning logs and wood and all this other stuff to try and keep smelting more things. Because your glory to the Chinese government is based on the numbers you report, both for farming output and for steel output. So this leads to basically if you produced, you know, 50 lumps of useless metal, you report that you report that you would report you have 5,000, you know, titanium bars. <laughs> uh, That's an upsell and a half. The same, thing oh, went, oh, wow. the, same, the same thing went for farming output. Farming output plummets, but each commune reports, you know, a pumpkin the size of a house. A squash the size of a car, six hundred you know thousand bushels of grain on a field that can only produce sixty. That's really interesting though, because I I had a conversation with a farmer not too long ago, and we mm -hmm. were talking about this, and he his whole thing was no farmer tells the truth about their yields. Mm -hmm. He goes, I'm honest about my yields, my crop yields to my neighbors, and I'm coming in twenty thirty percent. Uh, lower than everyone else he goes but when it comes time to the land insurance the amount of money they pay uh for their fields he actually reports higher than all the ones around him which that's the accurate number so even though he's saying he's getting a, a lower he's being honest with his yield and everyone else is lying he's actually getting a higher yield in return so it's kind of interesting that people lie about their yields no matter where you are yeah uh, yeah, and uh, with this whole thing, it's exacerbated because if you're honest, if you're not producing these outrageous numbers that all the fields around you are, well, you must be doing something wrong. You must be at fault. You must not be pure. You must be sabotaging this glorious republic. People have died from reporting accurate numbers in this time. God, that's self-sabotage if you're going to kill people who are honest. People, hell, people have... Uh, uh, additionally, your rations was determined by your output. So if you output five harvests a year on paper, you get more food. Yeah. 
if you output two, which is the most you really can, you get less food and possibly an internal affairs investigation. Oh, no. Wait, wait, again. So, like, they're getting food, but they're also producing the food. Yep. So, uh, at some point, there has to be a supply chain issue. There no, is. No, no, Almost no. immediately there is, because guess guess how taxes are counted on these uh, on these lands? Based on how much you produce? Yep. And oh, your tax geez. is not taken in money. Your tax is taken in a pure bushel uh, amount of your food output. So if you only produce 60 and you proclaim 6,000, well, there goes all 60 barrels. And since you proclaim 6,000, someone must be hiding the food. Oh. Cue neighbors turning in neighbors to the uh, Chinese Gestapo. <laughs> uh, even though they all know there's no food. <laughs> that is rough. Oh, wow. Yep. The famine uh, takes set uh, in by 1959. So by the first year that this is in effect, there is famine. <laughs> and uh, it gets to the point where neighbors, uh, one, hide, body, hide the bodies of relatives so they can continue to get food rations for that person. And two, exchange the bodies of relatives so that when they have to resort to cannibalism, they're not eating their own flesh and blood. Oh. Wow. Okay, that got dark. Yeah, I, oh, I, I, I now it's just getting dark. Just I warned now. you people before this was a very dark thing. Uh, yeah, about at least twenty to thirty million people starved to death by 1962. <laughs> oh boy. So yeah. wait, is, now. Is this just a famine because of the unreporting, or were there additional factors well, that also China, led it to the famine? Well, China, uh, well, there's actually two additional factors. Number one, in order to prove that all these reports of famine and starvation were lies, China triples its agricultural exports. Oh, no. All that food the Chinese government collected that they could have redistributed in this communal setting to keep everyone from starving, they sold it to prove that the, to stop, to, to prevent, to prove that the famine is a lie. They sold the food that could have stopped the famine. <laughs> and yet somehow they're supposed to not be capitalists. Yeah. Well, they, they had to keep up the image that this was working. Uh, despite the fact that in a country that was net neutral, for its food, it was now producing 30% less. Oh. So people were going to starve almost no matter what, but now you have guaranteed that people are going to starve no matter what. Oh, no. Like, there was going to be rationing this year, period, but now there will be death. <laughs> and they keep that going for four years. Oh, this video just got blocked in China. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. we were going to it anyways. We talked about it was always Chinese going failure. Yeah. Sorry, we but had the, a bunch uh, of Russian trolls after us a couple of yeah. months ago. Uh, but, uh, uh, the other factor, which is uh, where the birds come in for uh, this thing to tie it to our emu war, is um, one of the things that was designed to increase productivity around these communal uh, uh, farms was the extermination of pests. And 
Chairman Mao noticed that around all these crop fields, there were all these sparrows. And there could only be one reason for that. There was food for the sparrows in the crop fields. And what is food in crop fields? The, the crop. crop. Therefore, the sparrows are eating our crops, and we'll have more crops if we kill all the sparrows. Cue killing all the sparrows. I can't see any sort of ecological disaster that could befall this. Fun fact. Sparrows are not crops pests. Sparrows eat crops pests. Sparrows what? love the insects that feed on crops. Thus, they hang around cornfields and rice fields and all other fields where humans grow things to eat all the insects that would come to eat the food. <laughs> For our American listeners, it's like crows in cornfields. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Uh, yep. And, and so massive swarms of locusts begin to ravage the country for years because there are not enough birds to eat them. Jesus. So, oh, a was... plague of locusts. How yeah. biblical. Yeah, yeah, like, it's a good thing that China's not a Christian nation. Otherwise, uh, you would have a lot of doomsayers. Yeah. To be fair, Egypt wasn't a Christian nation when that lo plague of locusts happened. Yeah. Well, that's why they had uh, the plague happen. Dustin, you can't have doomsayers in uh, in mid twentieth century communist China. Those people are all dead <laughs> for their impurity. <laughs> oh God! Oh, descent is death. <sighs> you know, Chairman Mao loves you. Say these words, and you know what he'll do. Wasn't that? Didn't he hand out a book? Like there was like a handbook. He had a little red book that was his. That was his version of the Communist Manifesto. It was his ideology of communism for China. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. Lose Justin. Uh, no, he has. Uh, he has uh, vanished from the screen for a moment. There he is. He's had to do that. But, yeah. Um, sorry, I had a barking dog and trying not to interrupt the recording. Yeah. And uh, fun fact, throughout this entire disaster, which the Chinese government begins to repeal by 1960, they maintain that the only reason people are starving is they're not working hard enough. Of course. Again, again, I've heard this before in a capitalist, a capitalist society. It yes. is. Uh, yeah. And here it is in a communist society. You're not you don't love communism enough to work 25-hour days. I imagine that's what Jeff Bezos says to all his Amazon workers who are, like, starving. Or, I was going like, to say, that sounds like America now. What do you mean you're not working three and a half jobs and you can't afford a house? You need to pick up a fourth job, then. Yeah. You need to pick up a fourth job and start and start a side hustle. Oh, and no longer eat <laughs> avocado toast. It's the yeah, avocado yeah. toast. Listen, no more coffee. Fun fact. More people in these Chinese communes slept in the fields so that they could work from dusk to dawn without wasting any time going to and from the fields then slept in their apartments god oh my god that's awful like do they sleep in tents like do they have tents nope i, I can't imagine i met uh, uh what i gathered from this is you literally worked until you collapsed from exhaustion and then maybe the guy next to you picked up your tool and continued working. Damn. Oh, fuck. 
I find it interesting how a lot of these communist societies that popped up in the 19th or in the 20th century really emphasize that whole like your common man picks up your fallen tool and then continues onward because that was the Soviet war strategy. Yeah. And uh, and uh, unlike Stalingrad, this is a non-military strategy that is uh, to date the single largest uh, mass killing of humans not committed as an act of war. Which, that's impressive. I, yeah. I would, impressive's not the word I would use. Oh, I mean, just the sheer size, the magnitude of it. But yeah, I guess that's a bad way to put it. Like, incredulous? Let's just say, congratulations, China. You set a record. It's, it's not, not a the good one. one. It's not the one you wanted, but you got a prize. Uh, infamy is the prize, I guess. Yes, the prize is the condemnation of history. <laughs> oh boy! And yeah, yet you really shouldn't. Have, you really shouldn't have got that Groupon with Stalin for that. <laughs> but it was buy one get one free. Yeah, free for Stalin. Well, yeah, yeah. Here it costs. 30 million people but you know yep <laughs> we don't uh, so much so much evil but see that's the yeah. beautiful part about this episode because we just got done talking about this awful awful event that led yep. to lots of tragedies and shows that man shouldn't always mess with animal and nature and like certain ecosystems exist for a reason and yep. Also, nature also has a habit of working with humans as well, considering that the sparrows were eating the locusts. That's why yeah. spiders are friends, because spiders eat all the bad bugs. Yeah, spiders are friends. However, I would like them to be... Unless you live in Australia. At, dis at a distance. Yeah. Please. Well, that's please why I relocate. Them. I capture and I relocate. I do not murder spiders. Spiders are friends, not foe. Also, birds are friends. Unless you live in Australia. Uh, birds, the birds and the spiders honestly in, in, in australia nature is not your friend yeah everything wants to kill you in australia yeah. and do you know what uh do you know what's not a sparrow in australia <laughs> love that yeah, we're gonna jump to the great emu war now in our two for one little uh mini sode here <laughs> we should yeah. do more episodes about birds yes birds so, and bees so uh justin would you care to describe to everyone what the hell an emu is? <laughs> My dog killed one. Did it really? How did it even get near? Well, you live on a... F I forget you're a hick. Okay. <laughs> you can't kill an emu. You it's, kill... it's a long story. It's a long story. You killed what? a five-foot velociraptor with a dog. I didn't do... I didn't tell him to do it. He did it on his own <laughs> will. Was it a part of your farm, though? No, no. Was it, it was a, a neighbor's, neighbor's farm? It was a neighbor's, and my dog was very protective of my mom. And when my mom used to do regular walks, my mom would have my dog stay in the house with me, except I wasn't home. So he panicked, broke through the window, chased after her. The emu got spooked by my dog. Because emus make great guard animals against coyotes. Evidently, it couldn't handle my dog because my dog chased it. It fell, and then the dog snapped his neck. Oh, 
So, so for those of you who played, is one is one for twelve against the Australian military here. Pretty much, I don't. We never heard anything that happened. Like my dog apparently ran back up to my mom with the biggest smile, tail wagging, super like just excited. My mom was like mortified. We never heard anything from the neighbor, and they just got another emu. Oh, okay. So no harm, so, no foul. They probably contacted know. like an Australian contact. Is like, yeah. we'll send it to you. Just take it. Yeah, uh, I. I don't. This was know years what, ago. This was a long time ago. Like, well, so was know, this emu I don't know how you get an emu, uh, but the Australian Australians only managed to kill twelve in their great emu war. So Aaron's dog is uh, worth about a twelfth of the Australian military at this point. But to circle back, what an emu is for those of you playing at home is. A tall, flightless bird that is native to Australia. But to give you the sheer magnitude of size of what these creatures are, is the average one stands five foot seven or one hundred seventy or one point seven five meters in height. Yes, one hundred seventy-five meters. No, one point seven five. Taller than most chill. buildings. I, you you didn't let me finish. I could have said one hundred seventy-five centimeters, right? No. Yes. 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 Divide by. Uh, so yes. The, I, I will eventually system, master the metric system. Her, you can tell we're Americans. <laughs> this man is an archaeologist. He deals in meters daily. This is this is the this is this is uh, the American education system. It's a good it's a good thing he's not part of the survey team. Yeah. Wait, I was. I, I'm the one with the most he field is. experience. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad at all. That's like That's a one percent. Nice. We are the one percent. Yep. Uh, the emus apparently were so adept at finding the Australians coming for them that they were regularly able to evade guerrilla warfare. <laughs> literally, guerrilla literally, warfare. the Australians were just deploying people in like camo jackets and and sniper nests, waiting for the emu to pass through a place. And the emus knew to go around. Oh my god! They had better intel. Than the people with planes. I just imagine a, like an emu spy, just like in a full like human. He's like, "Hi, yes, hello, I am human." It's, it's Lemu, cool. Emu, and Doug. It's Lemu, Emu, and Doug. It's like this is my partner, Lemu, Emu. Ah, welcome to the Great Emu War. <laughs> Glad to have you, son. <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah. get rid of these birds in no time. Yes, he, I will he totally appears help. to be eating the intelligence report. No, <laughs> it's kind of seeds. It's like you see the opposite. Limu Emu sees their translator, who is also an emu, and they look at each other like, <laughs> oh, we're both undercover. <laughs> say nothing, say nothing, say nothing. Is, 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 yeah. is that Brian? Yeah. What's yep. Brian? Yep. This, th this war lasted 38 days. On December 10th, <laughs> the... Uh, the Australian government is forced to announce that there is, in fact, a war against the emus and that the war is now ended. In a loss for Australia. Yep. Of 20,000 emus, less than uh, uh, only a few hundred were killed across daily, across 38 daily engagements. Wow. Including guerrilla warfare, pure just yep. machine gun fire, like active yep. attempts at just trying yep. to drive at them and shoot at them. Yeah, and I, I should clarify, 38 days of daily engagements. <laughs> I should clarify that statement. God, and this yep. was like one herd of 20,000. 
Yep. Yeah, this was this was this was a main herd. They had gathered into a very large group this season and were just doing their thing where they just ravaged the countryside. Like I could just imagine that year for the emus, like, man, that was weird. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So yeah. Oh man. Yeah, they do a whole greatest generation thing with it, you know. I was that. I was doing the great I was I uh, fought on the, the great, great emu wall. Yeah. I was I was at the thousand <laughs> I survived the thousand emu ambush, son. Give me that whiskey. <laughs> we lost Jimmy. Jimmy was a good boy. Yeah. Unfortunately, he got gutted by an yeah. emu. Grandpa, I thought you said only 12 people died. They did, but it was still scary. Yeah, it was 12 emus. They died from embarrassment. <laughs> the 12, it was 12 emus that died out of a thousand. But, uh, so the Australian government changes tactics. As you do. Now that the war's over, they make several propositions, almost none of which actually happen. <laughs> uh, of course. No, okay. Number one, the Australian government places a bounty on emus for the farmers. So they have to do the work themselves, okay. Yep. Uh, in uh, return for, as a part of his bounty, the Australian government pr promised to provide farmers with free ammunition. Okay. I can neither confirm nor deny that this ammunition ever materialized. <laughs> Ammunition's not cheap, so that works. Um, additionally, they promised to build a wall and make the emus pay for it. There was <laughs> a proposition of a 200-kilometer anti-emu wall surrounding uh, Western Australia. Build that wall! This wall was never built. <laughs> so it's funny you mention that because they did build a wall in a different part of Australia. They built an 1800 mile long fence to keep dingoes out it's called yep. the great dingo fence it's an actual yep. thing there's like 10 or 12 full-time staff that just drive along the length to repair and patch it as needed yep although i don't know if the dingoes paid for that one but a dingo yep. did eat my baby yeah anyway uh characters aside uh the farmers continue to kill the emus for many years and to this day, emus may be killed if they enter your private property and the person who kills them has the appropriate gun license, which, given that this is Australia, is almost no one. <laughs> you know, what I think I would do in that situation, in that case, is I think I would pre-plan an entire area and just put thousands of landmines down. And then herd the emu into yeah. the landmines, and it'd be like the 4th of July. I would like to point out that at some point, Top Gear's own Jeremy Clarkson put out landmines while doing a show in Australia and killed a cow. Holy shit! Because a lot of that land in Australia is often used for free-range animals, so I don't think putting out <laughs> landmines yeah. is a good idea. Not just for the agricultural benefits, but also because someone is going to step on it. Yep. Um, <sighs> okay, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, but, like, what, how, what else would you do? Like, if you had to try and combat this, what would you do? You've seen these giants. Move somewhere else! But this is your pension. This is what you get for fighting the Great War. 
Yeah, this is this is yeah, this is this is what you receive after uh after fighting in war for your country instead I, of money. Which I'd it's still the great war trade. because the second the sequel wasn't announced yet. Oh, so this was supposed to be like a weird spin-off? This is for Australia it, only? Yes. Yeah, this 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 was this was this was, this was you know, MCU think of it. This was WandaVision. <laughs> I really don't And then we're coming back this. for a Doctor Strange 2. Oh, I no. really don't want to consider that concept. <laughs> Why not? It's it's all good and fun. But we yep. see quite a contrast between what China did and what Australia did. And honestly, it led to a little bit of debate internally between us. Because on one hand, they're two very similar events of like man versus nature trying to control animals and pests. But one had monumental consequences that are arguably still felt to this day. The other one is funny to point and laugh at Australia. Yeah. Yeah. One is, one is the government being stingy. The other is the government being incompetent and quite possibly malicious. (laughs) We'll let you decide. (laughs) I'll say, yeah. Uh, And uh, I do have some more notes on the emu war because there's some fun facts here. Okay. Uh, First of all, for people who are worried about the emu, uh, since the conclusion of the Great Emu War, emus have regained their protected animal status, as they are very much a cultural treasure. So much so, that at the time of the Great Emu War, the emu was on the national crest of Australia. Oh. The coat of arms of Australia, since 1908, has featured the red, has been held up by a red kangaroo and an emu. Interesting. So this was a freaking national animal they were shooting at. So it's a national treasure and Nicolas Cage hasn't tried to steal it yet? Have you tried to steal an emu? Do you we want We need to, to now, Aaron. Do you I want don't want to. Emu? No one no one Do should want have an it? emu. <laughs> oh, I mean again, my neighbor wanted it for to for protection against coyotes. Okay. My it's, dog was a bit bigger than a coyote. But you said they replaced it with another one. Yeah, but apparently, again, also, my dog was bigger than a coyote and killed the first one. Listen, all I'm going to say here is just get a guard dog. Why? Because the guard dog isn't liable to kick you to death. <laughs> Emus are incredibly territorial. Honestly? They're on their owners. <laughs> honestly, get a donkey. They also keep coyotes away. And also, they're cute. I should yeah. know. I yeah. own a half donkey. Yeah, but I don't want to be an Good ass. Role. His name is Otis, and I love him. Yeah. yeah. Also, they make, enough, they make enough noise, and also donkeys can cow kick. Yeah. Which, in case some of you don't know what a cow kick is, it means they can kick sideways. Yeah. But yeah, they are... Uh... They are surprisingly athletic. Honestly, like donkeys or emus, both. Donkeys, donkeys are surprisingly athletic. Donkey, a donkey is a relatively unassuming animal. (laughs) They will bite you. Like no one thinks that the donkey will bite. No, a donkey will send you to the pearly gates in half a second. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, like not only good for a beast of burden like it's often thought that donkeys were domesticated 
before horses. Really? There's some thought about that. Um, because despite the fact that donkeys are notorious for being stubborn, they're also just easier to get to. Well, yeah, they're a little bit smaller, not quite as... Yeah, not, not to mention the selective breeding needed to get to the modern horse is a lot more than the breeding needed to get to the modern donkey. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a one of the reasons why zebras were never domesticated was because they were more vicious than donkeys. Yeah. I also learned that there's such things as zonkeys, which blows yeah. me away. Ah oh, god. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun one. There's also like an extinct breed. I can't remember what it's called, but it looks like a cross between like it looks like what you think of a zonkey, except it's not. It's like its own species. Well, it was its own species, but it had like a striped butt and then like the front end looked similar to a donkey. Can't remember what it's called. I feel like that's like an antelope plus a donkey or something. It's something. It's like a. I don't want to imagine it. It, it was <laughs> weird. I've only ever seen to one. Be. I don't want to imagine any part of this. But uh, I yeah, think... don't fuck with nature. The great emu war and the great leap forward. <laughs> I think uh, that's a good point for us to just call it here because we've had a great conversation, great discussion. I think yeah. the conversation on the donkeys is a little sidetracked, so that's where I'm going to yeah. reel us back yeah, in he, here. Yeah, humanity uh, should humanity know your place, know your ecosystem. Get a donkey. Uh, try, try not to mess with it too much. Uh, that is the lessons to take away from... Uh, from these uh, historical happenings here on Historical Humans. Which, uh, damn nature, you scary. And uh, uh, I guess it's time for the outro. <laughs> yeah, so if you guys enjoyed watching today's episode, be sure to drop a like, comment, subscribe. Uh, be sure to follow us on all of the social media platforms. We'll have them all listed down below and in the show notes. And, um, Colm, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what we can expect next? What's the next podcast episode? What's coming up down the pipeline? All right. So our next podcast is going to be the history of Brazil. We're going to go down to South America, and we're going to try and do the history of a country. Uh, so another new ground thing for this podcast. We've never done the entire history of a country. We've done a we've done a uh, ancient culture, but we have not done a living country. <laughs> Which Brazil is very fascinating because they take a lot of inspirations from a lot of different cultures. And I don't know if it'll be mentioned, but they tend to play host to a lot of uh, a lot of different characters from other countries. Some yeah. of the more unsavory uh, yeah. varieties. Brazil, uh, Brazil has a very interesting open border policy. <laughs> there's, a, there's a small hub of Confederates that still live down there. Or descendants yeah. of Confederates at this point. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of people that have uh, gone to Brazil when uh, all other options cease to work, but uh, we'll talk about that and more uh, as we cover the whole history of this uh, insanely large jungle nation uh, in two weeks on the podcast. Uh, between now and then, however, uh, we do have some reads for you. Uh, I do believe we have. This coming Friday with this podcast, The Home and the World. And the week after, the much-delayed Kojiki comes out. Uh, some of our uh, more frequent mm -hmm. listeners may recall the Kojiki being promised a few weeks back. Sadly, uh, our uh, ability to record that particular episode 
did fall through and uh, we have it uh, coming out for you now on September 2nd. So be sure to look for that. And I guess this would probably be a good point. Um, as some people may have noticed, uh, Gwendolyn is no longer a part of the podcast. Um, unfortunately, she had other obligations and things going on in her personal life. So that is why we brought Aaron on as not a replacement, but someone to help fill that void because we are incredibly saddened by her leaving us and we're just trying to chug on through to the other side. I'm a rebound. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gwen unfortunately had to resign and we're all sad to see Gwendolyn go, but uh uh she you know, she made you know, she made her choice and you know, we wish her well. And yeah, we've got the rebound to keep our bed warm here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, although we don't have the titles yet, uh between now and next time we do hope to have some more reacts for you. We don't know what we'll be reacting to yet because it's a uh it's a hot take sort of thing and uh, we didn't do the hot take before this episode. So Yeah, we'll have a That's we'll have a, a react come out to um for us, will be tomorrow because we record these on fr on Fridays. But it will be coming out on um, August twentieth, so actually a couple of days Before ago. And then we'll have another one coming out on the twenty seventh. And then between that, we'll also have a couple of uh, explains. Although I, on the other hand, am not going to give you the title of that one yet because it's going to remain a surprise. It's one that I think people are going to enjoy and that they have been waiting for. And on that glorious bombshell. Thank you guys for watching, and we'll see you all in two weeks with the history of Brazil. Anyways, um, with that being said, emus have a wingspan of approximately 8 inches or 20 centimeters in length, and the they're the second largest um, living birds, and they have long legs and necks, and they can weigh anywhere from 110 to 132 pounds, or about 160 to one. 150 to 160 kilograms and then they have this giant six inch toe claw that is <laughs> very effective and emus will travel hundreds of miles every year and they'll follow clouds of rain they'll follow clouds and rain patterns and they eat anything from seeds fruits stalks budding plants as well as insects so these things are huge, like Colm said, velociraptors, effectively, flightless yeah. birds that are super quick and that just have a giant claw. Yeah. Uh, they're not carnivores. Uh, they, they are mildly omnivoric. Uh, they are primarily attracted to uh, the, uh, the reason for their antagonism in the Great Emu War is that they are attracted to farmers' fields, primarily because they eat the things that people plant. Yes. They are actual crop pests. Um, and Australia, being the land of kickboxing, now features the emu as well as the kangaroo. Oh, <laughs> so I feel like we have a uh, a horrible uh, cage match to set up. <laughs> I really don't want to be. I really wouldn't want to be one of the first prisoners or British explorers to discover Australia and start seeing these animals and just not understanding what they are or like how different they are from what you're used to imagine how the penal colonists felt they get they get sent to australia for stealing a loaf of bread because they were starving and now they're in a land full of emus kangaroos spiders and, and snakes <laughs> and an environment that is actively trying to kill you them in general except yeah. do you know what won't kill you in australia and this is my one fun fact is it the quokas 
No, it's the fact that they are the only continent on Earth that does not have an active volcano. Well, that's just lame. I know. So you will die of everything except for an, a volcano eruption in Australia. Wow, that's almost as fun as the fact that one time they just lost a prime minister to the ocean. Yeah, well... You lose <laughs> yeah. a lot of things. You lose a lot of things in Australia. It's fucking huge! It's like the size of the United States, and people don't understand that. It takes like... It makes me wonder how the Aborigines were just, like, how they lived in the environment. I mean, I don't know much a lot about uh, Aboriginal history there, but I am a little bit curious about the environment how or they, like how they perceive they would the travel for hundreds of, yeah they would travel for thousands of miles to go to uluru the giant mm -hmm. like monolith in the middle of the great outback yeah thousands they had a uh, yeah they had a uh compass song or a song map type thing where basically every every tribe knew this song and by singing it you could go from any point in australia to any other point and you would know the tribes and the environments that you would encounter at each step of the journey. That's insane. I love it. As well as physical landmarks so that you knew at what point in the path you were. Did the Aborigines hunt emus? Uh, Probably. No. Yeah. No? Oh. The, the Abori... Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, what I found is that the Aborig to the Aboriginals, uh, the emus are flying spirits of Australia in that pay a fundamental role in the creation myth of the world. Interesting. Oh my god. So awesome. they they in all likelihood knew to, how to stay out of the emu's way cuz the emu just wants to eat just wants to eat, you know, fruity plants. And it just follows the rain. That so they knew how to how to stay out of its way and they probably were not too happy about the emu war. But this is 1930s Australian government, so they're probably not listening to them. To they're be specific, British light December at this 10th, point. 1932. Yep. The Emu War begins. This is an official declaration of war. Alright, honey, I'm going off... Uh, sorry, honey, I'm going off to war. Where are you going? I'm going to the Emu War. That, that, uh, that, that uh, I sincerely hope that does not offend the Australian viewers. I, I, if it does, leave a comment. Drop your hate below. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So the war begins in 1932, but the premise for the war goes all the way back to 1915. You see, in 1915, the Australian government was somewhat short on money on account of it being World War I. <laughs> that happens, yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. What the government did is, instead of paying pensions to all the soldiers coming back, they decided to give them land grants in an area of Australia that was deemed inhospitable. Because it was emu country. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's one way to get rid of a bunch of pensioners. Yep, it was... Uh, it, Young it's Western, It's Western Australia... It's the worst land you could possibly try and farm in Australia. And they sent 5,030 farmers or uh, soldiers. There. So that's 5,030 separate farmsteads in the middle of the emu migratory pattern. Uh, nothing a few guns can't handle. I mean, they're soldiers, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's also. Oh, yeah. Australian... Let's give them more PTSD. It, it, yeah. It's also the Australian government. So. 
civilian firearm ownership is extremely low. Even in the 1920 or 1910s? It, it, is, it is embedded in the, uh, I believe, the Constitution or very near to the Constitution of Australia. Uh, several restrictions on the ownership of firearms by uh, non-government personnel. Oh, okay, so government. In or okay. Yeah, in order to qualify for a firearm, uh, one of the easiest road is to be current or former military, which these farmers were. So this is a population that would have the most access to guns, but still most of the, most of these people would have been disarmed upon their return from war. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, yep. And uh, so they decided to put up an emu country. Great. Yep. And, uh, in 1922, there's enough of the farmers there. Enough crops are being sown that, uh, the emus have begun to destroy the crops of farmers and the Australian government changes the classification of emu from a protected species unique to Australia to vermin. This allows farmers to legally open fire on emus on their land. Fire on site. Oh. Alrighty then, I guess that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. However, ten years later, the emus retaliate. Oh no, do they attack the farmers? <laughs> We're back so, and we have guns this time. So, uh, the emus, uh, in 1932, there's a, large, there's a large congregation of them. There's a single herd of 20,000. Wow. It's a massive herd that just sort of gathered at the... Uh, they gathered at the coast of Australia as per their migratory thing, and then they all followed like the same rain cloud back through. <laughs> and um, between this massive just horde of emu kicking through your f kicking down fences, tearing through your ha homes, destroying all your crops, it's also the Great Depression, which means the price of food is now less than the price to grow it. Oh. Also, I'm just kind of curious. I wonder what an emu burger tastes like, because I know they make ostrich burgers. I don't. Probably the same as an ostrich burger? Like, that could have been a viable food method ha with the drop prices, too. Yeah. I mean, considering um, the fact that, like, these emus appear to be bulletproof. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the, tactfully uh, skilled. Yeah. So, like, He's, good luck with that. Yeah, the farmers, mostly disarmed at this point, are extremely pissed. They do not have the means to fight twenty thousand emu. Well, they barely had the means to they they barely had the means to fight twenty, and so they begin to uh, severely petition the government. Is the words we're going to use here? Um, that the farmland was supposed to be their pension. It was supposed to be their reward for military service. Are you just leaving your veterans out to die? And their farmers' union manages to put enough pressure on the Australian government that on November second, the uh, government, uh, 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 the military inter begins to intervene. Uh, so soldiers exit Fort Perth to engage the emu. They are armed with ten thousand rounds of ammunition and Lewis machine guns. We have spotted the emos. They're dancing to My Chemical Romance. Yeah. Wrong, wrong animal. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, 
They are led by GPW Meredith, a major in the Australian Army. And along for the ride, because this is news, is like dozens upon dozens of press men. Journalists, photographers. This is an extremely well-documented military engagement. Wait, I'm just like imagining the government officials, like who clearly have like probably no experience farming, are probably rich enough to be like, why are the poor's obsessed about some bird? You know, that kind of attitude. Yeah, and they're just like, these veterans can't handle some birds. And then I want, I want to know what like their what they were thinking. Like when, or like anyone else, like anyone else who wasn't out there. I want to know why everybody, like if everybody was just like, what are the, what are these birds are causing problems? Like it, it was, it was, uh, it was supposed to be a pest control thing. It was supposed to be the government sort of stepping in because the pests were on such a massive scale, you know, just, you know, like if you had, if all the New York city sewer rats came above ground for one week, oh, no. the national guard would be mobilized to deal with them. <laughs> Now, oh, my question is, the, the press that w- came along, is it like modern war journalists where they had the flak jacket and the helmet and the giant press labeling? They're probably, probably looking fancy. These, these are 1930s Australian journalists. So they're probably there just in a casual suit, maybe no tie, a few buttons down for the heat, just snapping photos. I don't know about you, but if I was going into a war zone, I'd get a flak jacket and everything. I don't think they I don't distributed think... those back then. I don't even think they existed back then. They had they had jacket. They had like they, they had Kevlar. This is this is this is inter this is the interwar period. They oh, had okay. Um so anyway, they run out to they rush out to engage the emu and they discover that the emu can move faster than the than the soldiers can point their machine guns. Oh my god. And the military defeat is widely documented as no emus are killed in the initial assault. No emus were harmed in this part of the war. So the Australian government escalates, and by the end of November, they are launching daily raids against the emu, each time failing to kill them, despite having jeeps, machine guns, and helicopters. Helicopter? Wait, helicopters? <laughs> I've got him inside. Opening fire! Boom, 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 boom. Wait, I didn't know the hell. I thought helicopter. Well, I guess I know helicopters were first used by the U.S. at least in Vietnam, but I didn't know the Brit or the Australians had helicopters. I'll in double Viet- check, but several of the uh, photos I saw appeared to have an aerial view. <laughs> Oh, it might be a plane. It might yeah. be a biplane. Uh, it might have been a plane there. It might have been a plane. It did, I don't know. It was. It was kind of. It, it's. It's. It's very grainy. Uh, black and white photos that I sifted through. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Then, because um, early biplanes weren't in the during the uh, First World War, it uh, were used for reconnaissance and didn't have the machine guns mounted on them yet, so they were used to take pictures. Yeah. So more unlikely that's what it was. Yeah, that might be what it is. Then yeah, that would be uh so they would have they, they had planes and they still lost. Um fun fact, the emus appeared to learn over the course of this war. 
It's like Rise of Planet of the Emus. Yep. <laughs> Just if only the emus learned what, how to shoot the guns, what, we would definitely have an emu country what, by now. What what the uh what the emus discuss what what the government discovered was that the emus could see or hear the troops coming and would begin to maneuver and scatter so that they couldn't be boxed in. I just imagine like two vehicles. I just be I just imagine like one emu's like Red alert, red alert, code red, code red. The Australians are on the move. Go, go, go. This is not the a drill. This is not a drill. The, the little mini packs of emus would form. Each would have uh, what the Austrian military dubbed a commander who <laughs> would not graze, but would instead stand like this at attention and just move on a swivel looking <laughs> for Australian soldiers. Oh, we got some Aussies on the horizon. If it, <laughs> if it saw one, a call would go up, the emus would all raise up, they would all run in different directions. We oh got we got and they would all maneuver across each other in different patterns so you couldn't get a clean bead on any one of them. Oh, serpent. I repeat, we got a whiskey tango foxtrot situation. We got a whiskey tango and, foxtrot situation. And because of how fast they are, if they saw you from a distance, you could not hit them. <laughs> Even if you just blind fire, the likelihood of you actually hitting one is slow. Yeah. Yep. Not to mention the low uh, accuracy already on those Lua yeah. Maxim guns. Yeah. What what happened was the Australian government used encirclement tactics and close quarters combat. Oh Jesus. Again, against something with a six inch razor blade built into its leg and the uh kicking power of a protect of a professional kickboxer on steroids. Oh my god. Imagine going in with, like, a bayonet, like, I'm going in! <laughs> and yep. my dog uh, killed one so, of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the only solution was apparently point-blank machine gun fire. Even then, minimal emu casualties would be uh, would occur. At uh, no point did they think to just use a elephant rifle? I don't know if they had those. I think the issue is the inability to hit something. <laughs> Damn. Uh, they, uh, the Australian government managed to encircle 1,000 emus. They killed 12 of them. Oh, shit. Despite completely encircling the entire 1,000 emu herd. So what is that, like a 1.2% success rate? 